Hey everyone, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and I am your host here on Left, Right, and Center. You know, there are a lot of things in George Santos's life that we really don't know. After all, the freshman Republican congressman from New York City was caught lying about parts of his job experience, his education, even his heritage. But here are some things that we do know. His first weeks in Congress have been something of a charade and a giant distraction for the new Republican leadership. There are also members from both parties who wish he would just resign. And now we know that he's not going to be serving on any committees for the time being. Santos announced that he's temporarily declining those assignments. He was supposed to be on Two fairly low-profile panels, the House Committee on Small Business and the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Santos said in a statement that he's voluntarily stepping down so he can properly clear his name and also so he can focus on serving his constituents who voted him into office. So what does all this attention on this one member tell us about the direction of this new Congress? Well, I have Moa Lathy here to talk about that. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and advised Hillary Clinton and Sarah Isger back as well. She's a lawyer who was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump and is now senior editor at The Dispatch. Welcome back, Mo and Sarah. Always great to have you. Nice to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah Santos, how does this guy still have his job? <laughs> I mean, let's put this in some context. The House has always been a little bit of the zoo, right? So on the one hand, Santos is maybe more of an egregious example. On the other hand, during my 18 months at the Department of Justice, we indicted two congressmen, um, both of whom ended up uh, pleading guilty. So the idea that there are congressmen who break the law. It's like, oh my God, heavens to Betsy, when has this ever happened? Um, Now, I think that Republicans are in a bit of a weird spot because they have such a slim majority. If Santos were to resign uh, or through whatever means leave office, he's in a very tight district. Biden won his district and New York law calls for a special election. So Republicans would almost certainly lose that seat. On the other hand, he is proving to be such a distraction, such a constant source of bad headlines for Republicans. Um, You do wonder if it's almost worth losing just that, you know, they have such a small cushion, but even losing some of that cushion to get this problem over. To get the problem over and, and maybe develop some level of credibility for Kevin McCarthy as the new House Speaker. I mean, you know... He said voters elected Santos. Voters should decide if he resigns. I mean, there's a poll from Newsday and Siena College that finds a majority of his own constituents, including 71 percent of Republicans, think that he should step down. And we now know that voters elected him under these false pretenses. I mean, I, I just, you know, wonder, is it is it not just about getting past a distraction? But, Mo, I mean, should, should the leadership just feel compelled to punish him and send some sort of message. I mean, they should. Uh, But, you know, look, I think what we are seeing in Congress now is that uh, nothing matters except for numbers. Math is the only thing that matters. And Sarah's right. This is uh, mainly about the narrow Republican majority and an ornery Republican caucus that Kevin McCarthy is struggling to keep together. And so he needs every single vote. And you know what? George Santos is a reliable vote. He's keeping his mouth shut. He's doing as he's told. He voted for Kevin McCarthy for speaker. 
He voted uh, on every major issue so far in this Congress. He has voted the way the leadership has asked him to vote. Uh, and they're all close votes. So that's what this is about. Um, the, saying that his voters elected him, they didn't. They elected a portrait that he painted. He, they elected a, uh, a, a character from a tall tale. They didn't elect him. But they're stuck with him now because of the because of those numbers. I mean, you're, you're saying if this was a much bigger majority, we I mean, that that's one of the realities of of a Congress with with small majorities. That's right. I think if this was a big majority, Republicans, more Republicans, and I give credit to those Republicans, particularly those New York Republicans who are calling for him to resign. But he's not gonna no time soon, as long as he's got the the cloak of protection from the leadership. And so, and don't forget, he's getting a salary, which he otherwise would not have, and staff, all things that are going to help him as he's being investigated, BT dubs. That's exactly right. So, you know, he's not going to step down. So I give credit to those who are calling for him to step down. But if they feel that passionately about it, there is an option they can take, and that's um, to remove him. And that's an extraordinary measure. But this is, you know, it is sort of an extraordinary circumstance where you have uh, uh, someone whose name we're not even 100% sure which name to use on any given day because he has used different names. A guy who is under investigation by not only the United States government, but a foreign government for crimes committed there. And there's a formal request, I believe, for extradition. I mean, this is an extraordinary circumstance. They can take extraordinary measures. Well, I mean, speaking of McCarthy sort of navigating his caucus and and stuff like this with a narrow majority, um, I mean, I, I just think about – so Santos steps down from his committees. Um, and that is – that's sort of – cleared the way for McCarthy to do what he was talking about doing, which was remove more Democrats from committees because you're sort of blunting the criticism from Democrats who are saying, how the heck is Santos on a committee? And you're talking about taking Democrats off. But, you know, he's now won this vote to remove Ilhan Omar um, from a committee that uh, was a compromise, which is sort of interesting because you had a few members, including Ken Buck of Colorado, saying, I don't want to keep removing members from committees, but if this is the last one, I'll vote for it. But you've got to take future fights over removing people from committees to the Bipartisan Ethics Committee. And I'm struck by this moment. I mean, we can talk back and forth about who should be removed and who can be removed, shouldn't be removed. But that feels like a few Republicans saying, stop this, like stop the committee wars, stop focusing on this stuff. We need to move on. I think that's clearly what the hope is. You know, this all goes back to when uh, Nancy Pelosi removed Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from committees for their comments. The, you know, tit for tat here is that Elon Omar had said a number of anti-Semitic things, had been condemned by her own caucus for saying anti-Semitic things. And so it was, you know, seen as a similar situation. What's sort of interesting is you had to take a vote to remove Omar from that committee because it's a, you know, a permanent set committee. But Foreign Affairs, yeah. Uh, McCarthy also removed uh, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which does not require a full vote because it's a select committee. And um, and that wasn't for, uh, 
you know, offensive comments and things like that. And so anyway, you have ended up in this tit for tat. But look, Republicans said this back when they were removing Marjorie Taylor Greene. They said, this is our caucus. Leave it to us. She's apologized. If you do this and you just use your majority power to start removing people from the other party who you don't like, that, you know, turnaround's going to be a B. And so that's where we are. I'm actually impressed that those Republican members have said, okay, this and no further. I hope that that sticks. I think it's a mature response. Mo, is it okay to have this tit-for-tat sort of behavior in, you know, among our elected leaders? I think political partisan retribution is clearly what's happening. And I think it's a really bad look. Right. Especially when you look at it in the context of the Santos thing and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. I mean, if he just stood up and said, you did this to us, so now we're going to do it to you. I'd almost have a little bit more respect because that's at least transparent. But that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is because of her offensive comments, she cannot be on this particular committee. Uh, referring to Ilhan Omar, that she cannot be on foreign affairs because of her offensive comments. At the same time, he put Marjorie Taylor Greene on Homeland Security, a person who uh, has uh, talked about 9-11 being a false flag and talks about Jewish space lasers, is on Homeland Security. So, like, this isn't based on any sense of right and wrong, It's based on the sense of having been wronged and now finding political payback. And and I do want to push back on on one point, which is that Santos stepping down gave – from the committees gave McCarthy cover to do what he did with Omar. Didn't give him cover. He didn't boot Santos from the committees. He didn't – he can't say, look, I am showing – Uh, that I'm treating everybody equally. No, Santos resigned and McCarthy said, okay, fine. So that, it's not an equal thing. If McCarthy had said, I'm not going to put Ilhan Omar on this committee and I'm not going to put Santos on any committees as long as this is going on, that would at least have a little bit more consistency. That's very different from what actually played out. It's also worth noting, though, that everyone wins in this except for us, like the American people. So Marjorie Taylor Greene gets removed from her committee. She raises $3 million in the next quarter and becomes a right-wing celebrity. Adam Schiff gets moved from uh, the Intel Committee, and Nancy Pelosi endorses him to run for Senate uh, for Dianne Feinstein's seat. Like, it's a huge win for both sides, for all the people involved, except, of course, us. I mean, yeah, because—and there's something really scary— about this too. I mean, I, I, you know, I think of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I, I, and I don't know if she really apologized for a lot of her incendiary remarks. I mean, she said she, you know, regrets liking things on Facebook that that involve conspiracy theories and violence against elected leaders. She said she read it on Facebook. Right. She said she read it on social media, and now she's being put on the Homeland Security Committee. Social media is a breeding ground for conspiracy theories and misinformation, disinformation, and she's endorsing what she sees on social media and is being put on Homeland Security. Elon Omar said she didn't know uh, Jews liking money was an anti-Semitic trope. Like, let's talk about things that are not believable. And and Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, we should say, um, you know, released a statement, you know, very much criticizing 
Representative Omar for for saying those things. And she apologized. I I would like to point out much more deliberately and forcefully than we heard from Marjorie Taylor Greene. But so it's not apples to apples in my mind at all. But I just to your point, Sarah, how do we how do we stop this? I mean, you know, that the rules say, you know, it's very vague that you can remove members from committees if if they're you know, for, I mean, it's just vague and it feels like any leadership can use this and, and weaponize this. Maybe there's some sort of compromise now, as we said, that McCarthy has agreed to. But there, there's something fundamentally frightening, A, that we're even focusing on all of this and B, that that leaders and not constituents can just mess with how lawmakers can operate in their jobs. Oh, that's an easy answer from me, which is the ways that Congress is broken, if we fixed those, we wouldn't have all this nonsense. Because if we turned Congress into a legislating body again, then you would actually have all these incentives trickle down where you would have people be able to run on a record of accomplishment and legislation. Their records would be different than those who are running as social media stars or, you know, conspiracy theory stars. And the American people would have an actual choice. It would change who's wants to run for Congress, who's in Congress, what they do when they're in Congress, and all of this nonsense would either not exist or fade totally into the background because we'd be talking about real stuff that they're doing there. Mo, are there Democrats, any in the House, who would join, like Ken Buck, and say something like what Marjorie Taylor Greene said that got her removed was horrific, you know, but this has to stop. Like a a few bipartisan House members who would just say, like, "This, this kind of stuff has to stop. Yeah, I, I'm sure there are. Um, and, and look, I mean, I think there are a, a good number of well-meaning members of Congress in both parties. And, and I've talked to a number who privately will just like the, they are exasperated. They are tired of this. They are tired of the back and forth. And every now and then a few of them pop their heads up and say it. Um, but it comes back to something we've talked about on this show so many times. There's no incentive for that. The political incentive, the fundraising incentive, the media attention incentives just aren't there for them. And so they can sit there and scream till they're, you know, till they're, they turn blue in the face about how broken this is, but they're never going to get the same kind of political and financial and media capital as as those who uh, who thrive on the dysfunction. And, you know, look, it, I don't know how we fix it. I mean, if we could say, if we could wave a magic wand and turn the C-SPAN cameras on all the time and turn off Twitter in every house office, maybe, maybe we start to get there, but that's not ever going to happen. You know I so love the idea of keeping f- those cameras going. That's uh, Keeping the cameras on yeah, and Twitter I, off is probably the healthiest thing for our national dialogue, but we're not going to get there. Thrive on dysfunction. I'm, I'm going to remember those three words because I feel like that really captures a lot of the problems of today. Uh, okay, we'll leave it there. We're going to take a break. We'll be uh, right back to talk about a Republican who is challenging Donald Trump for the GOP presidential nomination next year. And I'm not talking about Ron DeSantis. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. All right, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. Mo Alethi and Sarah Isger are both here. Mo was communications director at the DNC. Sarah was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. You know, four years ago... 
February 2019, I was on the air at NPR talking about this insanely crowded race for the Democratic presidential nomination. There were something like a dozen candidates already in the mix. Fast forward to today, you know, Republicans desperately want the White House back, but things seem eerily quiet. I mean, you have Donald Trump scraping to reclaim momentum. There's all the speculation about Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. And now it looks like another former governor, Nikki Haley, is going to be announcing soon. She was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Trump and had said that she would not challenge Trump if he ran again. Well, so much for promises in politics. There's also former Vice President Mike Pence, who has strongly hinted that he would run. So my question is, is this going to turn out to be a contest of personalities or do these names that are emerging represent different visions for leadership within the GOP? Um, And Sarah, I mean, you've been in the trenches in Republican (laughs) presidential nomination fights. Uh, I mean, how would you describe Nikki Haley as a potential president? That's such an interesting question. It's not what I was expecting you to ask, actually. I love surprises. Yeah, I feel very surprised. So, because I think your overall point about is this just different personalities or is this different directions? um, Boy, you could ask that in any number of points in our politics right now. Um, And I do think that the GOP 2024 field is very interesting because of that. Um, And it is different directions, but maybe it's not, you know, 180 degree world we're looking at or, you know, 270 or whatever. Maybe it's a narrower set of angles. But you think about the 2015 race, uh, 2016, sorry, I'm living in 2015. I was running Carly Fiorina's campaign at that (laughs) point. The race race started Um, in 2015. You're fine. Oh, it very much did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at this point in 2015, I was sitting in cold, cold places in Iowa and New Hampshire a lot of the time. Weren't we all? Um, and and it was a free-for-all, and it was for the direction of the Republican Party, you know, very different people running with very different messages. Uh this time around, there's a version of this that shapes up to look a lot like 2016. A whole bunch of people in the race. It's sort of anyone's game. And that's how Donald Trump emerged. And certainly the polling tells us if it's similar this time around, you're going to have a similar outcome most likely. But I look back at the 2008 Democratic race, and it looks a lot more similar to me. You had a bunch of people in that field. You had John Edwards and Jim Webb and Dennis Kucinich. But It really was always from day one. And and by the way, at this point, both Obama and Clinton were in the race by January of 2007, um, which is sort of fascinating to think about what that could look like. Um, And it was always this narrative between the juggernaut of the Clinton campaign versus the upstart change, different voice of Obama. Trump was the upstart. He had no record he had to run on. He could say whatever he wanted. Everything he said was new and shocking and newsworthy. He's looking a lot more like Hillary Clinton in 2024. Hmm. He's the juggernaut. He's the expected candidate. And someone like Ron DeSantis is looking a lot more like Obama. Now, here's a big difference. We're not expecting Ron DeSantis to get into this race until Memorial Day or after um, he's going to presumably wait for the Florida legislative session to end. They're passing a, res- you know, repealing rather a resign to run statute in um, in Florida for him to to pave the way for him to run. So we're still looking at, you know, four or five months of kind of a wait and see field. So Nikki Haley getting into me isn't all that interesting because it's a little like 
Dennis Kucinich getting in, or, or let's be even more charitable, John Edwards getting in in 2007, but we still don't have Barack Obama in the race. Unless she becomes the Barack Obama. I mean, I, you know, who knows? Which makes me wonder, Mo, I mean, you, you and I met when I was covering that campaign and you were working for, for Hillary Clinton. That I, I'm fascinated by by Sarah's sort of seeing similarities. I mean, you, you did have like a, a heavy weight in the party, Hillary Clinton, and you have a heavy weight now in Donald Trump on the Republican side. I mean, do, do you see that comparison, like that that the Obama of the GOP might be either emerging now or, or we might see that person in coming months? Uh, I mean, I can see some of it, right? I mean, yes, you have Donald Trump, who is seen as this um, you know, major force, the prohibitive, quote unquote, front runner, though not by as much as Hillary Clinton was seen at this point in 2008, right? In the 2008 cycle, um, we're, we're already seeing a number of polls that show Trump being vulnerable, uh, uh, not necessarily behind, but just vulnerable within a Republican field. And I guess you could maybe try to draw some distinctions between DeSantis and and Obama in some ways, but I but I don't know that this is a race that you can easily compare to any other previous race. I mean, you don't have a former. We we never had a former president do this since uh, you know maybe Teddy Roosevelt uh, try to do this, and the Republican Party is going through something right now where I think a lot of Republican voters are still trying to figure out what it is they want. What will be the most compelling argument? One one correlation I'll make to 2016 on the Republican side is it's not going to be about ideology, right? I don't think you're, this is going to be a, 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 a primary race where they're going to be arguing over who is the most conservative candidate, the way a lot of Trump's opponents in 2016 tried to argue. This is going to be about something else. This is going to be part about exhaustion, part about what kind of direction do we want to go in. It's going to be in part about electability. You know, there are going to be a lot of Republicans out there who are just tired of the fact that Trump has led them to three straight defeats and maybe just looking for something different. There is one other factor that I think is becoming increasingly important in presidential politics, and Trump seized on this in 2016, and that is authenticity. I think a lot of voters are just going to be looking for someone that doesn't exhaust them, that they think can win, but just seems real, just seems like a real person to them. And increasingly, and Sarah, I'd be curious if you hear any of this, but I hear chatter amongst Republicans I know that they have a big question about that with Ron DeSantis, that he just seems a little too prepackaged for them. That he doesn't seem like just your average real person. When I ask them, well, who do you think is? I hear names like Brian Kemp in Georgia or Tim Scott from South Carolina. Tim Scott, incidentally, who's out there, just announced he's starting a nationwide tour beginning in Iowa, uh, a sort of listening sessions. So you're seeing other candidates make moves and – the person who emerges in a crowded field could be the person that just best connects with voters, that they feel is the most authentic, is the most genuine, the most real, and doesn't bring 
baggage. George W. Bush. George W. Bush. I mean, that authenticity was was a yeah. huge, a huge reason. John McCain. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are all candidates who have really clicked with people. But the polling is just so different than anything we've seen before. You know, it's like in what way? You know, it's Donald Trump at fifty percent, Ron DeSantis at thirty percent, and then a whole bunch of people at one, two, and three percent, and that's it. But that's normal for this time, right? I mean, the the one percent. No. Uh, 1%, no. Nothing like it, this. It, 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 It'd be hard to see a, a two percenter right now get the nomination. You're saying two percenters sometimes move forward, but we've never seen one candidate that far ahead, another candidate that far ahead, and then a whole bunch of one two percenters, and one of those move forward. Mm. That's what's so unusual. Can I use this moment to ask about some substance? Because I started getting all political nerdy and digging into to Nikki Haley <laughs> and kind of some of her her you know policy platforms, um, and I so it. it her PAC, Stand for America, talks about woke corporations, and it says, now meet woke unions. They're sending billions of dollars of workers' hard-earned money to left-wing special interest groups. Americans shouldn't stand for big business wading into liberal activism. And there, there was something about that. Like, I I hate the word woke and wokeism and, and so forth, but when, when, like, Donald Trump brings it up, um, it just, it, it's so triggering the way Nikki Haley talks about this, at least in in that language. I mean, Sarah, it sounds more like when I hear you talk about universities and college campuses and, and your concern that there should be more of an on-ramp there for people with conservative ideas and values. And, and I just wonder if, if this idea is going to be um, in the zeitgeist through 2024 you know, is there an opening for someone like Nikki Haley to to talk about that in in a way that's not so offensive and and triggering? We could actually have a real conversation. What I was going to say is Nikki Haley is an incredibly talented communicator, but then you said she sounded like me, and now it sounds like I'm saying I'm anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but, I made that comparison. You weren't doing that yourself. Don't worry. Uh, Nikki Haley has always been a very talented communicator in the Republican Party. But I'll tell you, again, like thinking back on my Carly time, one of the things that was really frustrating in 2015 and 2016 was that we would say things well and with polish and without typos, and it wouldn't get any attention because it wasn't outrageous. It wasn't offending people. There weren't, you know, there weren't people to then protest and then people to defend against the anti-protest. And so it all fell flat. And I wonder whether Nikki Haley will face some of that as well, because you're right. She, I think, is able to communicate to um, more mainstream Republicans. Let's I don't know if that's a great term, but what I'll use for right now. But that's not in the social media outrage machine cable news environment we're living in right now. Well, here's the other problem with with that approach. When you're running for president, you need to stand out. You need to have something that sets you apart from the rest of the field. That message sounds exactly like what everybody else is saying. It's what Mike Pence has been saying. It's what Ron DeSantis has been saying. Donald Trump certainly has been saying it. it what's, what's different about her saying it from anybody else. Well, that means it's going to be a personality contest and who's the best messenger. I mean, it, it, we're looping back to that. Unless you find somebody who's able to change the conversation a little bit or have a different conversation that gets people nodding, right? The most important test in the early stages of a presidential campaign 
is when you're when these candidates are out there and they're speaking to crowds, how many heads do you see nodding in the room? That's your measure. I like that. And if a candidate can go into rooms that as time goes on, get bigger and bigger and see more and more heads nodding, that means they're maybe onto something. You're going to get a lot of Republicans running on this anti-woke message. They're all doing it right now. And so they're all going to get a lot of head nods. If someone else can stand out from that by saying something else, by focusing on a different approach. That's why as a Democrat, I'm watching very closely Tim Scott. He's probably the Republican that I, if I were on the Biden campaign, would be the most concerned about. How fascinating. That's interesting. (laughs) What? Say more. He doesn't run that kind of campaign. But every time you see him speaking, he's one of those few Republicans that has used a message, has articulated a message that actually can get non-base Republicans heads nodding. When he talks about race, for example. He doesn't sound like your typical Republican when he talks about race. He's not like your typical Republican when it comes to race. And he does it in a way that, that actually attracts Democrat and, 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 and independent ears perk up a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that Democrats can't draw a distinction with him. They clearly can. But he's got a different message, is the point I'm making, than a lot of, than sort of the rote Republican war on wokeism. Whether or not it's enough to break through in a crowded field, I don't know. Only time will tell us that. But that's, I think, what Nikki Haley's challenge is. is She's just kind of saying the same thing that Ron DeSantis is saying it. Are people going to like the way she says it better, differently? I don't know. I mean, what, what's sad is that this idea of wokeism, I, I, I think of the kinds of conversations that it could open the door for, like in our personal lives, where if we just resist the, the first reaction, you know, if someone says, I don't understand your values in your life, can we talk about it? The immediate reaction shouldn't be, you know, you're a bigot. If you bring up something that is unfamiliar, you know, the first reaction shouldn't be you're trying to force your liberal agenda on me. But but the conversation so quickly goes there. And this campaign is either going to open the door for, you know, real conversations like, you know, Sarah, you've brought up, like, let's talk about what climates on college campuses are like and have an open mind. Or it's going to drive us into our corners and and make things feel more polarized and angry. And, and you know, is there hope for the latter not happening? I don't know. My concern is just the how the incentives are set up in 2024 is very different than it was in 2000 or even 2008. You know, the rise of small dollar donors drives so much of this conversation. People don't give five and twenty dollars to the person who makes a really good nuanced point. They do it because of outrage and anger. They do it watching social media that needs to be clipped into six, 10, 15 second clips. Um, They do it when the other side attacks someone on your side. All of that sets up terrible incentives. So Mo is right. You've got to stand out. I just think he's wrong about the way that Republican candidates are going to need to stand out in a Republican primary. We'll see. I mean, I think we're in a populist era, and that speaks very much to what you're talking about. But there's there's different flavors of populism. There's progressive populism and there's conservative populism. But there's also angry populism and there's aspirational populism. Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama were good examples of aspirational populists in their own eras, in their own ways. They were able to 
to throw some elbows, but they didn't run the same kind of angry campaigns that we see a lot of Republican candidates today doing. I'm very curious whether or not there is room, in, and I don't know the answer, whether or not there's room in today's political climate for that kind of hopeful, aspirational populism to emerge in a crowded primary field. We'll see. We'll see if someone even tries. One of the many questions that we'll be trying to answer as we go forward. Um, Okay, we'll stop there. Going to take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit about what landlords and employers are doing to try and lure workers back to the office. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with Left, Right, and Center. I am your host, David Green. I am with Sarah Isger, Senior Editor at The Dispatch, and Moa Lathy, Executive Director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And I'm going to put you both on the spot right now. I want you to be honest. Where are each of you physically sitting right now? I am on the sidewalk next to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Wow. <laughs> You're outside. <laughs> I mean, I'm in my car, but okay. yeah, it's it's the car is off and it's getting quite chilly. Are you going to the museum? Like, are you <laughs> heading into? I might. I might. Should. I enjoy it. It's a great museum. Highly recommend. Free. It is a great museum. It is a great museum. I am currently in a hotel room in Philadelphia getting ready to attend the DNC's uh, winter meeting where we'll be voting on the calendar. Nice. I really was hoping that you were both at home. So you've ruined my whole narrative. So let's just pretend I never asked that question. No, actually, it's interesting because neither of you are in an office, Correct. which I think is is significant. I mean, how much time do you each spend in offices? Honestly, yeah. I, this is the first week that I've done the show in a long time where I didn't record it from my office. I'm back in the office full time. Okay. So that's funny because this, I almost always have recorded this show from home. I went into my office for the first time yesterday, um, maybe for the first time in uh, four months, five. It's been so long. I can't even tell you what season it was last time I was there. Wow. I'm probably in an office, like a studio where I am right now, just like two hours a week to do this show. And otherwise I'm at home or in a hotel or somewhere. Um, And after three years of all of this upheaval in our lives, you know, during COVID and all the COVID protocols. I mean, things are returning to normal in some ways, but there's this new normal for a lot of people uh, that is work from home and this big decision about whether you want to go to work and what employers should do. And it's become a huge challenge, both for employers and, and also for commercial landlords who don't want businesses who can't get their workers to come to work to give up their leases. There, there was this Cool piece in the LA Times detailing what some developers and office park managers are doing to try and entice workers. It almost gets comical. I mean, they're planning concerts, they're opening bars and coffee shops that are only accessible to tenants and employees um, to make them feel special. They're meditative sound bath sessions, flower design workshops. Uh, I mean, I would come to work if all that's happening. Mo, you and I would come if there was a karaoke bar, um, which I think should be next. Yeah. <laughs> But they're even hiring tenant experience managers. So, I mean, this is getting almost ridiculous in some ways or not. Uh, And like, Sarah, where where do you think this is all 
headed? Like, are, are we seeing a real change in what the workplace is as, as you know, hopefully we emerge from this pandemic? Absolutely, yes. And I think it's a problem in two huge but different ways. Okay. One, the urban revitalization that so many cities were experiencing pre-COVID of people moving back into downtowns um, is reversing. And it could be just catastrophic for some of these downtowns if a bunch of businesses are closing and shuttered. It makes it very dangerous to not have you know, lots of people in downtown during the day, at night, et cetera. Washington, D.C. is one of them. I mean, suffering a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's just, it's comatose in downtown D.C. these days because so many people are not coming to those offices. And it it results in a rise in crime and property destruction. Then more businesses close and it becomes a really vicious cycle on that. Um, Number two, there's a big mentorship problem. Young people, a lot of the time, do want to go into offices. Like, what are they going to do? Sit in their, you know, 300-square-foot apartment by themselves? Um, but their mentors aren't coming in. Like, frankly, my age cohort and above are like, ah, we've got kids. I don't want to put on pants, <laughs> whatever. I'll stay home. I'm already at my career, you know, point or whatever. But, you know, I think about law firms in particular. I hear a lot of partners complaining that their associates don't know X, Y, or Z. And I think to myself, like, yeah, but we all learned that from watching, literally watching, um, by being in the office next door, by overhearing things, by going to lunch, all the things that aren't happening anymore. Not because nobody's coming into the office, but because that older cohort isn't coming in anymore. And I think that will have a long-term deleterious effect on this upcoming generation who just aren't going to get that guidance and mentorship that we all had. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, it, it, it certainly there are mental health questions about being isolated at home, not being in office in an office environment, having conversations. But the mentorship thing is is real. I mean, I think about my early days in in journalism. I was at you know at the Baltimore Sun, coming to work every single day as the research librarian in the office, and there were these legendary <laughs> writers at the Sun, like Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover, and people I'd be like honored to breathe the same air as as them, and would be learning from them, and that. That kind of stuff isn't going to happen. I mean, I just think about what a dum-dum I was. And, you know, you'd hear overhear someone you respect saying, oh, my God, can you believe this? And you'd be like, what? Why can't I believe it? And, like, that would teach you stuff. Yeah. And then you'd go write it down and be like, figure out why I can't believe this because that has to be important. Right. (laughs) Those little interactions that we take for granted um, are going to be not there as much. I mean, look, there's there's lots of debate going on and lots of studies being conducted about whether— uh, the 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 move to working from home is better or worse for productivity. People cite the lack of uh, commute time as uh, that can then be put into work time and and fewer uh, pointless meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a really fascinating study by the Harvard Business Review uh, just this last fall. I think it came out in like September or October which talked about there being really one main motivation for people to want to go back to the office, not company expectations, not even like the commute time argument. There was one big motivation that actually got people eager to go back to the office, and that was being social, Mm. the social aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And just to read a couple of of stats, 85% of employees said they would be motivated to go into the office to rebuild team bonds. 84% 84% would be motivated to go in if they could socialize with coworkers. 74% would go in more frequently if they knew that their quote-unquote work friends were there. 73% would go into the office more frequently if they knew that their direct 
team members would be there. So I get this move to make it more social and have the big festivals and the parties, but I think it's even more basic than that, right? Like my staff, I'm sure there are plenty of times when my staff would walk out of a meeting with me and just want to complain to one another about me and how unreasonable I am. (laughs) Never. That would never happen. Sarah, I'll talk to you right after we tape the show. But yeah, never. That would never happen. In the Zoom era, there's no water cooler for them to do that. But maybe the flower design workshops, these are all new kinds of water coolers. Maybe this is is places trying to, to create these spaces for social interaction. I think, you know, the, the all this stuff is great. It's just people miss the opportunity to engage with one another. They miss the opportunity to have those human moments with one another, whether it is around the water cooler, whether it's just popping into someone's office with uh, to run an idea by them, which you can't do with uh, in the in a virtual environment unless you schedule a Zoom, whether it's going to grab that drink right after work or Sarah bumping into someone at a food truck. <laughs> True. That kind of stuff, I think, um, matters to a lot of people. And so if you are an employer who's looking to bring people back who are resistant to coming back, I think just focusing on that social engagement, that social interaction, that team bonding, just the human element is probably your best bet over any other sort of incentives. We're not going to ever, I don't think we're going to go back to full office Uh, environments for every employer anytime soon, but maybe people will start looking forward to coming back in more frequently if we had more of that. Don't forget also, this used to be like a dating thing, like you would go to work because you had a crush on someone or like that was sort of your dating pool or your extended (laughs) dating pool, but that's not how the kids are dating either. It's all apps. (laughs) That's a good point. I I, I do wonder though, is there, I don't know, this might be getting, trying to get too deep and philosophical, but is is there something sort of privileged about this conversation? Like is whatever, however the workplace changes, if COVID sort of changed the workplace and gave people this ability to decide whether to work from home or not, there's only a certain segment of the workforce that, that these changes might benefit or affect. That there are many people in lower paying jobs that are not in fancy office parks and not talking about flower design workshops, um, who are not going to experience the trends that we're talking about. And if this is a moment to reflect on what is the American workplace, we need to keep that in mind. Yes, but when you talk about dry cleaning, Starbucks, you know, those the sandwich shop next to the office, yes, those people are all having to show up for work, but they're affected by people not going into offices too. Yeah, I was going to make a very similar point. I mean, there's there's two groups here that don't have choice but are incredibly affected. We, and this goes back to the midst of the pandemic. Essential workers didn't have an option to work virtually. Nurses uh, couldn't work virtually. A, a lot of people could not work virtually. But Sarah's exactly right. I mean, the problem in downtown D.C., that you referenced earlier, David, is not just that we now have a bunch of vacant buildings in in D.C. and the city is trying to figure out how to grapple with that and even exploring rezoning some of the commercial properties into residential properties. But it is. It's the dry cleaners. It's the deli owners. It's the small businesses. Any of us that have spent time in D.C. know about all the cool little bars and pubs and restaurants that uh, that are uh, outside of the old Washington Post building. When the Washington Post moved, a lot of those businesses 
almost fell apart. A lot of deals were made and sources gave up a lot of information in those bars over <laughs> cigarettes and whiskey. And that's just one of many, many examples. Yeah. Um, They're little ecosystems. It's an entire ecosystem. And so when the center of that ecosystem crumbles, uh, the the ripple effect is tremendous. Those people, and why I think it is kind of cool to see some of those local businesses in LA, in that article you talked about, um, get in on the act, get involved in making downtown fun again for people to, to come back to because their livelihoods depend on it. Mo, what have you liked most about being back in the office? Like what's your experience been? 100% the people. 100% the people. Um, you know, we were able to be productive while we were remote. But there is something about feeding off of the energy of your colleagues, both the positive and the negative energy. Um, otherwise, it just sometimes felt like stale energy when we were remote. We could, we were much more creative when we were when we're together. We're and and you know, for a mission-aligned organization like mine, uh, to be able to feed off the energy of achieving that mission, it, it that was irreplaceable. And I was back in the office the first day I was allowed back in the building. But not everyone is, is doing that. I mean, I guess I wonder, like, are, is this is this a permanent some like change or correction or, or within a year we might just be back to the way it was before COVID started? I have a hard time seeing us going back to pre-COVID, but I think we can pro- we'll probably find some place in the middle to meet. Sarah, do you have you benefited from being home more, like more time with family? Like, is there another side to? to this? I mean, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because like if when you asked Mo, what's the main benefit of going in? And he was like, people. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me, what's the main benefit of staying at home? And I'd be like, not wearing pants. <laughs> um. <laughs> are, th- are there other benefits to being home? I mean, or is that the main one that we should? And that's a pretty compelling one. <laughs> it's very compelling. It's super compelling. Uh, Look, I will just say as a woman, not having to do makeup in the morning, having to have a whole separate wardrobe for work, all of that saves me a ton of time, energy, mental energy, um, the commute, obviously. And yeah, I mean, it's a lot more flexibility. I take lunches more seriously. I try to like reach out and see people that I want to, stuff like that. But it's not like I think nothing's lost. Um, I, I do see plenty of downsides to me working from home, both for myself and my coworkers. But it's so nice. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I think we have presented the decision confronting many people. Um, and we will leave it there. And it is time for our left, right, and center rants and raves. I present to you Sarah Isker with her rant or rave for the day. I'm feeling very, very ranty about what has been happening at the Dallas Zoo. I don't understand why this isn't top-tier news across the country and why this moment where we could all come together and solve a problem that isn't politics, it's not culture war, like this is an opportunity and we're missing it. The Dallas Zoo has had three, three different break-ins, whatever you want to call it. Uh, They cut the enclosure of a clouded leopard who escaped. They cut the enclosure of some monkeys who chose to stay. They killed an endangered vulture, Pin, 35 years old, really important to his species. 
Then they stole two tamarind monkeys who, thank goodness, have been found oddly in an abandoned house next to a church. Um, and they were unharmed and they're so adorable. Uh, can we just get to the bottom of this? What is happening and why? I'm very upset about it. I'm getting on a plane to Dallas. Thank you. This must be stopped. Mo, all you. I am going to rave about something uh, I never thought I would rave about or someone I never thought I would rave about. Uh, Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. (laughs) Boris Johnson's on a high-profile tour in the United States. He was doing a panel discussion here in in D.C. this week and went on his own rant against Tucker Carlson. Uh, for infecting people's minds when it came to Vladimir Putin. I think his quote was, I've been amazed and horrified by how many people are frightened of a guy called Tucker Carlson. Has anybody heard of him? What is it with this guy? All these wonderful Republicans seem somehow intimidated by his perspective. He went on to highlight how Tucker Carlson has empowered and emboldened and parroted Putin and Kremlin talking points and then point by point, rebutted them, telling people who Vladimir Putin really was. It was the kind of, and remember, Boris Johnson is a conservative. He embodied the kind of populist um, politics that we've seen here on the American right. To have somebody of that profile speaking out and calling out Tucker Carlson's lies uh, was refreshing, and I hope some American conservative populists follow suit. All right, I'm going to rave about someone I never thought I would rave about, um, and that's Tom Brady. And I'm raving about him. <laughs> I'm thanking him for sparing us this time. He retired again this week, but thank God he demonstrated some level of self-awareness because he realized the preposterousness of a year ago when he made his retirement, this long, dramatic, <laughs> emotional to-do, and then oopsie-daisy, took it back and played another season. Well, this time he he just started a video saying this is for good. He said he wasn't going to be long-winded. He said you only get one super emotional retirement essay and that he used his up last year. Of course, he did then go on into a super emotional thank you to his family and fellow players and all of us and the whole world. He said he wouldn't change a thing. As a Steelers fan, I would love if he would change a lot. Um, but congrats anyway to Tom Brady, and thanks for keeping it brief. And that is all the time we have for today. Uh, I am so lucky to work with uh, a whole bunch of extraordinary people, um, including Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy. Thanks to both of you. Also, Sarah Singer-Schiff, who produces Left, Right, and Center, our production assistant, Alexandra Applegate, our executive producer, Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by John Meek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. Love you being here and hope you come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.